please turn to Romans chapter 3. You can find that on page 941 in your Bibles. And while you're turning there, this morning, our topic and passage for our worship service is to reflect and revisit our salvation through the gospel. As a Christian, when we travel down the road of life, many of us have traveled and and traveled for a long time, and some have just started. Many seasons come and go in our life, right? But no matter how much we are growing, no matter how far we have come and gone, it's always good to revisit, to go back to your home base. I want us to revisit the gospel. I want us to go back to where it all started for a lot of us in our Christian walk. And I think it's fitting that as we're approaching almost five years since Embassy was launched, that the gospel be the foundation upon which we continue to build this church. It's important to revisit some of the cornerstone truths about the gospel, to go back to the basics. Donald Gray Barnhouse, speaking on the truth of God's word through the gospel, said, A scientist may say that a mother's milk is the most perfect food known to man. And the scientist may give you an analysis showing you all the chemical components. He may give you a list of all the vitamins in the milk and an estimate of the calories in a given quantity. But a baby will take that milk without the remotest knowledge of its content and will grow day by day. So it is with the profoundest truths of God's word. Some of of us may be able to analyze it. Some of us may not. But all of us do well to drink, and to grow. My hope for you this morning is that we drink from God's word to be refreshed, to be re-energized, as you hear and understand the truth that brought you to where you are today in your Christian walk. So I want to begin by asking you this simple question. My question to you this morning is, what is the gospel? I know many of you believe in the gospel, But can you explain the gospel? One of the most clear presentations of the gospel is found in Romans, right? Paul's letter, which was an introduction to who he was, it was uh, his doctrine. He gives us the blueprint and the clearest explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans has impacted the church's life in every age. Men like Augustine was converted by reading Romans 13. Martin Luther's understanding of salvation was radically changed as he studied Romans. The result, of course, being the Reformation, right? Where there was a distinct and clear line that was drawn between faith and works. There was also John Wesley, who was converted as he actually listened to Luther's sermons on Romans. In fact, one of my professors in seminary asked this question. Have you ever wondered why is it that Paul longed to preach the gospel to the saved and thriving Christians in Rome? I think for the same reason we here at Embassy need to hear the truths of the gospel often in our own lives. With that being said, I want to submit to you that man is born into this world with two impossible problems. The first problem, that he is born into this world already under the condemnation of sin, and as a result, he has no desire to know God because of his rebellious heart. That's problem number one. 
Problem number two, because of the power of sin in this world, he has no way possible to come to God on his own. He cannot come to God on his own. So let's dig deeper into this truth of the gospel as we see how God rescues and reconciles us to his own. Read with me Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Verse 27. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. Notice that to understand the gospel, it must begin with God and his righteousness. In fact, let me, let me back up a step, and let me say that throughout the book of Romans, the thought of and the, and the mention of God dominates the book of Romans. The word God occurs 153 times, an average of once every 46 words, more than any other New Testament writing. So if this is the case, then we can deduce that the theme of Romans is what? It's God, right? Who he is, what he's like, the centrality of the scripture and the gospel is God. The righteousness of God is the one attribute or a characteristic which is threaded throughout every section of Romans. And that's what I want to focus on first. If you or I want to be right with God, we must be righteous, and therein lies the greatest chasm between man and God, because we are not right before God. So let's address the first problem. The Bible tells us that we are born into this world in sin and under the condemnation of sin. Some of you may be wondering, why are we talking about this? Why, are we, why do we have to go all the way back to that? Why are we born into this world with sin? Why do you need to address that? I think it's a good starting point. It needs to start with God and his motivation, his establishment, before we can understand who we are before him. So we start from the beginning, from Genesis, in order to understand how far we have fallen away from God. You remember chapter 1 in Genesis, right? The creation, God created the heavens and the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the trees, the animals, everything God created, right? Chapter 2, God creates man and woman. He creates, God, he creates man and woman in his own image. God who created them in his own image to have a relationship with them, for them to enjoy God and his creation, yet they did something. By chapter 3, they already did something terrible. They sinned. They disobeyed. They were deceived by Satan, and in their pride to be like God, they chose to sin, and thus all of creation was condemned because of their sin. So now, the result is that we are accursed people. 
We are born under the curse, and we live in this curse apart from God. We are born going astray, as the psalmist says. We are cursed because of the dis- disobedience of one man and one woman. By, and by the way, I just want you to know something. It's not that they sinned a hundred times or a thousand times. It was one sin. It was one sin that they committed, and all of creation fell. In comparison, what about you and I? We sin every day without even thinking twice, without even consideration or the consequence of what that sin brings upon us. In fact, that's what Paul is saying. All have sinned and fall short. That sin is not just a, a one-time thing, that it's a, it's a continuous thing that happens in our life. We sin continually, and there is no quenching of sin. Many of us truly do not understand how disgusting and vile sin is in our lives. We don't. Do you understand? God abhors sin. He hates sin. It is a very strong language. He cannot stand to have sin in his presence. And this is why we are cursed, because we are unrighteous, and we have nothing but sin in our lives. You know, we've been going through the book of Exodus. Pastor Phil's been teaching uh, for, I think, a couple of months now on how God rescued his people, right, the Israelites. They were his chosen people. God chose them. And God called them out, out of Egypt. He wanted to separate them. Why? Because it pleased him. They needed to be taught how to worship God. And so God gave them his commandments, right? He gave them his law. He gave them his instructions. And yet we see in the book of Exodus and and, and throughout the uh, beginning of Old Testament that these people were hard-hearted. They never learned. They would rather have gone back to Egypt. They would rather have comfort and go back to what they knew instead of worshiping God, instead of worshiping and obeying Yahweh. So our Old Testament reading this morning in Deuteronomy, we chose that because I wanted you to see that when God gave his law, when God instructed his people, he told them that they would be blessed if they followed and obeyed God. But if they did not, that they would be cursed. And we actually just read a very small portion of the curses that God talks about or gives to them. You need to read actually chapters 27 and 28 for the full context of the curses that would befall man, that would befall the Israelites if they disobeyed God. What I want you to understand is that these curses are now yours and mine because of our disobedience and our sin. We're not any better than the Israelites, let's be honest, because we cannot keep God's commandments or his law. We are not able to keep the law of God. Our good works, our best intentions in obeying them fall pathetically short. So this brings us to our second problem, that you and I cannot come to God on our own 
or be reconciled because we cannot live up to the standard of the law. You know, if, if left to our own devices, you guys know your hearts personally, each one of you. You know your heart. If left to our own devices, let's be honest, we would choose all the, the vain things that charm us, that deceive us, the momentary pleasure, the lusts, right? The fleeting pleasures over choosing God or the things of God. Sinners cannot be reconciled with God because, God because sinners actually don't want to be reconciled with God. And even if they wanted to, let's just say for, the, for argument's sake, even if they wanted to be reconciled to God, they can't because God is righteous and humanity is not. This is why it is only when our righteous God initiates, apart from the law, as Paul says, that we can be reconciled to the one true and righteous God. So what is God's righteousness? Righteousness is that character or quality of being right or just in the sight of God. That's what righteousness is. So here's the question of the day for you. Here's another million-dollar question. If God is righteous, how can he forgive you? If God is just, then how can he forgive you? We believe that God is just. We believe that God is good, but we are not. How can God justify the guilty sinner and at the same time remain just? Can you answer that? Some have falsely taught that instead of being just, God is loving, and therefore he will forgive you of your sins. Well, if you follow this reason or logic, that makes absolutely no sense. Because what they're really teaching is that God, God's love, is unjust. You see, God is love, and God is just, and he cannot compromise or lessen one of his attributes for another. God's love is just. Some even believe that there's a universal principle of justice that even God must submit to. That there's this principle that's outside of God that like, is, is hanging over him. Listen, he doesn't have to satisfy any sort of other justice outside, him in, outside himself in order to save us. He is bound by no such thing. The justice that God satisfies is his own. There is no other. The very nature of God demands that he justify the righteous and condemn the guilty. This is the God that we serve. One theologian suggested that it was the greatest riddle ever that a holy and righteous God faced when he set out to justify the ungodly. It's sometimes hard for us to really understand and comprehend what justice is or the concept of justice because we live in a world where justice is so perverted and misused nowadays for somebody else's gain, for one another's gain. You turn on the news, you read the newspaper, people are fighting for social justice, people are fighting for racial justice, for whatever other agenda they want under the umbrella of justice. Even in my own household, I'm sure even in your own households as parents, I am guilty of dealing unjustly with my kids. 
There are times I don't want to punish them for their disobedience by finding some sort of excuse or, or explaining their conduct away because I don't want to administer justice, right? I fail to deal justly either based on my own feelings or even facts. Why? Because they're my kids. I want to love them. I want to excuse their sin and shield them from the guilt. So, you could say that love kept me from judging my own children as they ought to be judged. You see, God, in keeping with his holiness, his righteousness cannot deal unjustly with guilty sinners. He cannot be apathetic. He cannot be half-hearted. He cannot turn his face away when you and I sin. Besides, why would you want a God who is partial or inconsistent? How could you trust a God who is like that? He must judge consistently and condemn the guilty. So I ask you again, if God is good, if God is just, how can he forgive you? If he stays true and consistent to his character. How can the claim of the law be satisfied? How can the justice and the wrath of God be satisfied? Look at what it says in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. So it is God who is the one who saves. He initiates according to his will, according to his good purpose. You need to understand God didn't need you or me to find any sort of fulfillment or, or satisfaction in his being. So often the world puts God under certain constraints or obligations as if, as if, if he really was a good God, then, then he would bless me, that God owes something to you and I. He owes nothing to us. You see, God is complete in himself. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they have a perfect relationship, a perfect union. There is no deficit. There is no need. God doesn't have any unmet desires that only we as human beings can fulfill for him. How utterly foolish to think such a thought. He is the I am that I am with no other qualifications, with no other exceptions. God is not dependent on us, but dear friend, you and I are completely dependent on him. I want to paint this picture for you guys because I want you to see the depravity, how far we have fallen, how, how cursed we are. I want you... You, only you can examine your own life. Only you can see what you are like. And according to God's standard and before God's standard, I hope that you see that you are utterly unworthy. Only then can you appreciate what God has done for you. So if God didn't need us, why did he rescue us? Isaiah 43 tells us that the ultimate purpose of man is to glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
So we were created for his pleasure, to bring him glory, to bring him honor, to worship him, to be satisfied in him. When you hear that, I hope that it would humble you that to know that God created you in his own image and rescued you to give him glory. And for those of you who know him, for us to enjoy him forever. But can I share this, this thought with you? I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that, yes, God does everything for his own glory. He does. But that does not invalidate, it does not devalue his love for you. What do I mean by that? It means that his motivation to rescue you is also because he loves you. It's a real love. It's a genuine love. He's not forced or obligated to love us. He does so because he is love. Look at what Scripture says about God's love. Let me read to you a couple of, uh, of passages. Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a good, merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. Do you see that? God's love is unfailing. It is steadfast. It is faithful, because God is love. He loves the sinner. He loves you. It doesn't say he only loves the saved, right? Because he loved us while we were yet sinners. He loves you even when you hate him, when you want nothing to do with him. He still loves you. Do you believe that truth? Do you believe that? Let me show you how much God loves you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Later in Romans 8, Paul actually talks about God as he shows his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You read all these passages, and yet so many of us struggle to understand God's love for us. Why is it so hard to accept this truth of how much he loves you? One preacher shared this thought about God's love for you. He said, the most difficult thing you're ever going to have to do as a believer, the most terribly difficult, almost impossible task that's laid before you as a believer is this. You're going to have to spend the rest of your life fighting and wrestling and struggling to come to the point where you believe that God loves you as much as he says he does. You're going to have to spend the rest of your life fighting, wrestling, and struggling to come to the point where you believe that God truly, really loves you as much as he says he does in his word. 
It is the love of God that leads us to repentance, dear friends. It is His kindness towards us that breaks us of our pride and our sin. It is His unconditional love and mercy towards us that leads us to Himself. It is also the same love that orchestrated the greatest rescue for a cursed and wicked people by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our propitiation. See, up to now, I've told you that we are born under the condemnation of sin, that we, are, we cannot be reconciled to God because there is such a great chasm between us and God. Now I want to share with you the good news that God has made a way for us, that a holy, righteous, and loving Father initiated this rescue and this reconciliation. God gave us a substitute to stand in our place. He gave us His Son. We have Jesus Christ who has satisfied the justice of God, the Father, by atoning for our sins. You know, sadly, you ask the world, who, who was Jesus? Who is Jesus that I should pay any attention to him? And the answers are actually not that much different from when people answered that question in time of Jesus to the Puritans to even today. Some say he's a good man, a good teacher, he's a moral man, he's a social justice warrior. You'll hear all of it. But listen, how you answer this question of who Jesus is, it has eternal consequence. Jesus Christ was the God-man. He was fully God, and he was fully man. And Scripture teaches that the gospel must be God-centered, and therefore it is Christ-centered. You see, Jesus is our great God and Savior, according to Titus. The fullness of God dwells in him, according to Paul. The New Testament tells us that he bears the titles and the names given to Yahweh in the Old Testament. He does things only God can do, creating the universe, forgiving us of our sins, judging us on the last day. He possesses the same attributes that God possesses. He is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent. He's everywhere. God himself came down to humanity because humanity could not go to God on their own. He lived a perfect, a sinless life in obedience to the will of the Father. I want you to think about these things. Do you understand that there was not one moment in the life of Christ, not one moment where he sinned or that he was tainted with sin? There was not one moment in where he was not in perfect relationship, in perfect union with his Father. But there's not one moment in our life, not a single second where we are not tainted with sin. There's not one moment in your life where you loved God as he ought to be loved. But there was not one moment in the life of Christ where he did not love God as God deserved to be loved. Jesus gave glory to God in every moment of his life. But there is not one moment in our life, not one, where we give God glory as he deserves. Do you see how great Jesus is? And yet, Christ became the very thing that God despises, the very thing that God hates for you, and for me. 
He was the only perfect sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. Why do I explain who Jesus is? Because you cannot appreciate what God the Father did for you if you do not understand the, per- the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only then can you appreciate the love of God for you. Only then will you be motivated to fall on your knees every waking moment because of what he did for you. And then all the things of this world that charm you, that deceive you, that entice you, they will fade away. Jesus Christ became our propitiation. This means he appeased or satisfied God's wrath against you and me, and he reconciled us to God. Paul, I think, sums it up beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For your sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way we can have a relationship with God the Father is that we come before him in righteousness, not in filthy rags. We cannot stand before him. Even if we had one little spot or blemish, we could not stand before God. You remember, it was last week when, um, when Pastor Phil was teaching, when God came down on the holy mountain, right? His presence was on the mountain. Do you remember that as we were reading and as he was teaching, that not a single person, not a single animal could touch the mountain lest they would die? We cannot enter into his presence unless we are consecrated, unless we are perfectly clean without spot or blemish. So Jesus became sin for us. He stood in our place, and the judgment that was for us fell upon him. The perfect, spotless, righteous Son of God became a curse for you. The same curses that we read earlier in Deuteronomy, these curses were placed on the head of Christ for you. He who knew no sin became sin. He who was blessed became a curse so that we who are a curse would become a blessing to him. He was made sin for you when he went to the cross and died for you. And by the way, I want you to understand that this does not mean that when Christ was crucified on the the cross that Christ's nature devolved or that um, his nature was defiled. Even on the cross, he was still the perfect, pure, spotless Lamb of God. Our text says that Jesus was just and the justifier. So what is the result when you are justified? What does that mean? Well, when you're justified, it does not mean that at that moment that you believe in Jesus that you are made into a perfectly righteous being. That is not what that means. Because if that was the case, then you would never sin again. You would be perfect. And I think we can all say that we are not perfect. Justification is a legal or forensic doctrine. It is used in regard to a court of law. Justification means that at the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, at the moment that you believe in him, you are declared legally right before God. God declares you before his throne of judgment to be right with him. You are declared righteous, not made righteous. You are declared righteous. 
It's important to understand that. It is Christ's perfect obedience and full satisfaction for your sin, which are the grounds upon which God declares the sinner righteous. So the provision of righteousness is solely through the blood of Jesus Christ, as we sang earlier. You remember when Moses came before the Lord, uh, before the Lord in the burning bush? What was the first thing the Lord said to him? Take off your shoes, you are standing on holy ground, Moses. You see, you and I cannot stand on the holy ground before God unless it is on the worth of Christ's shed blood. It was Christ who declared you righteous on the cross through the shedding of his blood. Not only are you declared right with God, here's the second part. You are treated as right before God. You are treated righteous. Don't miss this part. You are treated right with God. What does that mean? That God's disposition towards you changes. The way he looks at you changes. How he treats you in light of who you are and what you did, it changes. That is why Paul can say that you are a new creation in Christ. All old things have passed away. Now you are treated as perfect before him, not based on anything that you've done, right? But because of what Christ did for you. Do you see that? So hearing what I've shared with you thus far, what should be our response as a sinner to what Christ has done for us? What should be our response? I think many of you know, but I think it's good to revisit it. Paul says says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen? Dear friends, if you want to have freedom from sin, from judgment, from eternal separation, come before him with empty hands. Fall on your knees, repent and cry out to him to save you. You cannot offer anything to God. You cannot do any sort of work or merit to earn God's favor. You cannot add or even take away from what Christ did for you. That is why you must accept it as a free gift. It is a free gift of salvation by faith. Paul says that you are justified by faith alone and you must confess your trust in Christ. You know, it's hard for us to accept at at times including myself, it's hard for me to accept that I don't have to do any sort of work, that I don't have to do anything to get to God. We are so works-oriented, we as people. So it's really hard for us to, to accept that at times. Listen, works may declare us to be righteous before men, but they do not make us righteous before God. It is only by faith. One commentator said it this way, faith is the vital point of contact between sinner and God. All may be justified, but only those who believe are justified. Remember, there is no meritorious value in faith itself. The blood of Christ and the grace of God compose the basis of justification and the principle upon which it is offered to man. This is the Godward aspect of justification. 
But like all blessings of salvation, the sinner cannot receive it until he accepts it. And this he does when he acknowledges his guilt and puts first personal faith in what God has done for him in Christ. Do you see how amazing and magnificent this truth is for you and me? That we can do nothing, that we can bring nothing before him. That it is only by the grace of God that we have this gift through his son. Dear friends, this is the good news. This is the gospel that we must live out, that you and I must live out and share with the rest of this world. Does this truth not make you rejoice in Christ? I hope it does. If you understand your sin, if you understand the consequences and the depth of your sin and the hell that waits for you because of your rebellion and because of your disobedience, I assure you, you cannot help but rejoice in this truth. I wish I could go on and on about the glorious and marvelous truths of of what God has done for us. You know, you can spend a lifetime studying this one truth and you will never exhaust it. If you're here this morning and you're not sure if you believe this, if you don't understand God's grace and this, and this free gift that he offers to you, come see me. Come see one of the other elders. As I said earlier, how you view God and his son and what he has done for you will have eternal consequences for your soul. You know, for those of us who are walking with the Lord, you know, we're, we're all in different seasons of our life, right? Whether you're dealing with physical problems, whether spiritually you've become stagnant, life is throwing you curveballs, you're suffering, you're just living from one circumstance to the next. May the truth and hope that is found in the gospel put you back on the firm and solid ground. I hope you will go back to your home base from where you began. I would that Christ be your anchor and hope, your salvation from whatever circumstances, wherever you are in life. My charge for you, my encouragement for you this morning is that you would rekindle that passion and zeal for God who is your first love and that the truth of the gospel would consume you so that you would walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. That your affections, your thinking, your whole being would be conformed more and more to his son as you meditate on scripture. I hope and pray that we here in this church would never compromise on the truth of the gospel, but that we would strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray.